Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the ACTUS podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. Today's featured ACTUS solution is the 2020 ACTUS conference, which will take place May 5th through 8th at the Mirage Hotel in Las Vegas, with six educational tracks, inspirational keynotes, and unparalleled networking, you don't want to miss our lucky 13th event. Yes, this is our 13th uh, national conference. If you register by March 27th, you'll get the early bird discount rate, so don't hesitate. We'll be plugging that date quite a bit um, over the next several weeks here. So, the Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, January 29th, marks our 142nd program. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Listener Mailbag, Pressure Ulcers and Injuries. So instead of a co-host, today I'm pleased to be hosting two of our boot camp instructors, one from the CDI side of the house and one from coding. They're both on your screen there, but for those listening via the podcast, we have with us our Sharm Brody. Sharm is a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps, as well as a subject matter expert for Actus. Of course, a frequent co-host on this program. Uh, just by way of briefly of background, Sharm has more than 35 years in the healthcare industry, including multiple areas in a, uh, of nursing in a variety of roles, implemented CDI programs and departments, um, has written many articles for us for our CDI journal, our regular coding clinic update. We're going to be touching on some of the uh, coding clinics related to today's topic on today's show. So welcome to the program, Charm. Hi, Brian. Nice to be here. Hi, Shannon. Right. Hi, dear. <laughs> well, you've already done the work of introducing Shannon for me, Charm. <laughs> uh, so we, we also do have Shannon. Shannon McCall is the Director of Coding at HIM for us at Simplify Compliance where she manages the instructors of the Certified Coder Boot Camps, which cover physician and outpatient hospital coding, as well as inpatient hospital facility coding. Shannon, um, in conjunction with our lead CDI uh, instructor, Laurie Prescott, co-developed the Risk Adjustment Documentation Coding Boot Camp. She has extensive experience with coding for both physician and hospital services. She's also a former and original member of our Actus Advisory Board, and Pleased to have her back on the show. You've been on a couple times prior, Shannon, but it's it's been a little bit, so thanks for coming back on the podcast. Happy to be here. Always a great crowd. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right. As I always do, I'm going to start with a question related to uh, today's topic. You should be seeing this poll distributed on your screen, but I'm going to go ahead and read that out loud. Uh, the question reads, how would you describe your organization's ability to capture specificity of pressure ulcers? Would you describe it as excellent, meaning, meaning you have very few clarifications need be made? Physicians pretty much document what that stage is, perhaps. Uh, good, occasional queries needed and clarifications needed. Would you describe it as fair? You still leave many queries to the physicians. Uh, perhaps you describe it as poor. Often the stages are not captured. 
maybe they're poorly coded uh, or not applicable. So I always say not all of our listeners are working in this uh, acute care setting. So again, how would you describe your organization's ability to capture specificity of pressure ulcers? Excellent, good, fair, poor, or not applicable. All right, we have about 80% of our audience that have weighed in on this. So I'm going to go ahead and close this poll out and we will come back to the results uh, after our discussion today. All right, so as I mentioned, our guests are Shanna McCall and Sharm Brody. They're our tag team guests today. Again, I want to thank you ladies for and thanks for being a part of the podcast today. So for our listeners, maybe you remember, I, I'm always asking you to send in your questions and ideas for future shows. So I, you, you uh, listened to me and responded. I got two really lengthy and detailed questions sent in by a couple listeners of our podcast. These are really coding related and, and, and clinical related. Um, so I wanted to get these two questions out on the show. They're, the first one's actually multi-part. And it, as alluded to by our title today, concerns uh, some numerous injuries they see in their emergency room. And we also have one on pressure injuries uh, and pressure ulcers. So we're going we're gonna to get to these today. Um, I've obviously recruited two of our boot camp instructors to help with this, field these general type of questions, as we always do in our classes. Um, I will say, as we discuss these questions, Please feel free to add to the conversation. You can use the chat pod on your screen to do that. Uh, if I am able and as I am able, I will work these in. These will probably generate some discussion, uh, maybe post-program. But let's, let's go ahead and get started. So this first question reads, Hi, Brian. I have been reviewing a variety of injuries that have been, to say the least, challenging. A podcast on how to code some of these injuries will be really helpful, and I'm, we're glad to help. Um, so the first example is, she has, this is a three-part question. Question one, a gunshot wound to the thigh damaging the femoral artery. The, the, the writer reads, this was treated in the field with a tourniquet and caused a clot to form in the femoral artery. The problem was to not end up in a complication code due to the vascular surgeon stating that the thrombus was related to the tourniquet. So this person had sent in um, a coding tree their coding manager came up with. We think it's correct, but maybe there was a better way to code this. So I posed this question to uh, Sharm. Uh, we'll, we'll start with Sharm's uh, perspective first and then turn it over to, to Shannon. So take us, so take it away, Sharm, for us. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. It's a little hard being on this side. I like being on the other side where I'm just your co-host. Um, <laughs> So the first thing I'd like to discuss is actually why they used the tourniquet. The purpose of that tourniquet was to stop the bleeding. We didn't want the patient exsanguinating, so we stopped the bleeding. Um, to stop the bleeding, the tourniquet, of course, it's going to end up forming a blood clot. That's part of the normal process. That's what should be happening with this tourniquet. So um, it depends on, you know, if the clot actually, once it was formed, broke off and traveled. If the clot broke off and traveled and say was a thromboembolism and went to the lungs, that would have created a PE and that would have been a complication. But as it's stated in the question, 
in my opinion, I don't see it as a complication, and I'm going to let Shannon talk to the coding of it, because the whole purpose of that tourniquet was to form a clot. So it was, and I don't like the word expected, but I'm going to use it. It was an expected outcome of that tourniquet, the use of the tourniquet. So that's where, um, from a clinical perspective, I'm looking at it. You know, was it a clot that was just formed at the site of the tourniquet? Did it travel? Did it break off? What did it do? But we don't have any more information. So I'm going to say that was an expected outcome and not a complication. And I'm going to listen to Shannon's. <laughs> All righty. Um, well, from the standpoint, uh, I had sent uh, Brian, which you see there on the screen, just because it may be helpful to kind of understand my thought process when it came to this one, because um, it was a great question, first of all. Um, and um, I wholeheartedly agree when it comes to the tourniquet that um, that, uh, to my knowledge, is the intention of it is to stop the blood flow and that a clot would form there. Uh, now, from a coding standpoint, um, if we start in the alphabetic index under gunshot wound, um, there's basically kind of um, different routes that we can go. As you can see that it either will take you to an open wound, if there was a fracture involved, which in this question definitely did not have any mentioning of fracture, or it's going to be an injury to an internal organ. Um, and so, uh, if you tend to go uh, the route of a um, of an open wound um, that uh, it really is, it doesn't really take you very far. It's more coded more as a laceration. Um, and uh, that it seems to me that when you're referencing the index, the only entry that has a specific anatomical location under injury um, of a blood vessel, if they do have an injury for a femoral artery. Um, the specific codes you'll see there are identifying a laceration of considered to be minor or major, it'll default to minor. Um, however, um, unfortunately, um, I think coding these, typically you would think of them as a puncture wound. And um, and I'll, I'll reference, there's a coding clinic that kind of goes along this line as well too. Um, and I'll kind of summarize what Brian's kind of showing you there is that essentially there was a question similar to this, but it wasn't a rupture of a, of a femoral artery, but that gunshot wounds should be classified as a puncture wound um, versus like a laceration or uh, any other type of, of injury. Now, the problem is, is that there is no option to code a puncture of ephemeral artery in the alphabetic index. And Brian, if you scroll back up again, you'll see that the only option really is that there's a puncture of the thigh um, with or without a foreign body. And um, so the challenge I think on this one is that there is an option under an injury of the femoral artery of a specified type that's not elsewhere classified that would not be considered a laceration. And I believe this was the one in the coding tree that was shared with me that was the code that actually they were using, which I do agree that I think would be the best code in this case, um, because one of the things that um, I noticed was that um, the femoral artery is uh, injury is at the same indentation as the laceration, as you can see, and um, that the S7509 category, which would be the, I think, correct code, is a major complication or comorbidity or an MCC. Um, whereas if this was coded just as a puncture wound of the thigh, like as if somebody, you know, stabbed themselves with a pencil in their thigh or something, uh, that uh, that code is actually not a CC or an MCC, which is concerning to me because although, you know, I'm 
certainly not a clinician by background, but I would think a puncture of a femoral artery is a pretty major injury there, um, if not addressed quickly. Obviously, it must have been pretty serious if they used a tourniquet. And um, so based off of the um, official guidelines uh, that we'll see that the definition of a not elsewhere classifiable code would be used when there's a specific code is not available for a condition um, for uh, a particular entry. And based off the limited information that's really in this question, it would be presumed that this was a pretty major puncture. Um, and that I think that it would probably be most accurately described as being a specified type of an injury to the femoral artery, which is likely, again, the use of that code, um, because the puncture wound of the top thigh is too nonspecific and would you know, definitely increase the complexity if a major artery was disrupted due to the gunshot wound. So um, I do agree the S7509 series would be the most appropriate in this case, and um, and again, that was just, you know, kind of the decision tree. The hard part is that there's just not an option for a puncture wound of a artery um, in the alphabetic index. And so unfortunately, um, it kind of takes us down a different pathway, but it's a fantastic question. And um, hopefully that made sense, kind of the rational thought that went into selecting the S75 uh, series versus coding it as a puncture wound of the thigh. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, thanks, Shannon. Appreciate you walking through the uh, the logic there and, and taking us down some of the, the references here in the coding tree. Um, let's let's move on. We we this person again did ask a three part question, and this next one is also um, so she writes in another case a gunshot wound to the neck with damage to the pharynx requiring surgical repair. The main question would be what do you use as a principal diagnosis? And does it make a difference if it's an accidental injury, hunting season, for example, versus a self-inflicted injury, uh, suicide, a suicide attempt? So. Okay. Well, this is Shannon. I think this was probably mostly a strict coding question. Um, first of all, if it is an accidental injury, don't go hunting with that person again. Um, that would be a bad idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, if it's it self-inflicted. Um, <laughs> that would um, that would certainly uh, be be an issue as well too. But those are probably going to be more so additional codes to to describe the intent of how something happened um, using external causes. And uh, but from the injury standpoint, um, the if the, there was a surgical repair, obviously the the principal procedure we're going to assume that's the only thing that was done. The principal diagnosis would be the one most closely related to um, the reason for the admission. And if that required surgical intervention, one would think that the injury to the pharynx would be the principal diagnosis. And so the big difference on this one is the index is very different on this one. Is that if you go to gunshot, remember. Remember I showed you earlier where it takes you to either open wound, it takes you to a fracture by sight, or it's an injury to an internal organ. And so if we go to an, an injury of an internal organ, we actually can go to, to, um, to be able to reference specifically a puncture wound that is of uh, involving the pharynx. And you'll see there that it has a cross-reference that says C puncture of the pharynx. And so um, right there at the very bottom, it gives us with or without a foreign body of S1123, that category versus S1124, which I think it would be one of those two, depending upon where there was uh, any sort of retained foreign body. 
from the gunshot wound, like shrapnel or something. Uh, and both of these codes are um, CC conditions, not that it really would matter if it's used as a principal diagnosis in this case. But I think this one's a little more straightforward, Brian, because there is an entry. And I'm sure that's probably why there was a question about the puncture of the femoral artery, because uh, there isn't an entry for that. But there is when it comes to a solid organ like the uh, pharynx. So in this case, I think this one's pretty more, pr pretty much more straightforward. Okay. Thanks, Shannon. Mm -hmm. And on those two, can I just add something, Brian? Absolutely. We, we didn't have, obviously, access to the full medical record. I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Um, nor do we know if the physician was actually queried either with the complication of the first one. So we would always want to query the provider if we did believe it was a complication, because they ultimately would decide. And they, you know, they have to relate it to the tourniquet and obviously make sure that it is documented appropriately. And we did not have. Right. Um, so we're just going off of what we had. That's a good point, Sharm. I'll just note again to the audience, we don't have medical records, nor am I requesting medical records from the audience. No, no. <laughs> So yeah, we're, yeah, we're, and we're I, covering general scenario. Right. All right. Let's let's get to the last part of this question, and then we'll have one from another listener. But the the question, the third question she asks, um, is another area of interest is cardiac arrest. I haven't found a coding clinic covering what you do if the patient arrests outside the facility, is resuscitated, and NSR on arrival. We're treating acute respiratory failure anoxic brain injuries, aspiration, et cetera. We may or may not know what triggered the cardiac arrest. What would the what would be the principal diagnosis in that case? So I'll jump in here first, if Shanna doesn't mind, give her a chance to catch her breath. Um, we got to look at what the definition of the principal diagnosis is here. And as um, most of us know, per the UHTDS, it's condition established after study to be chiefly responsible for occasioning the admission to the uh, patient to the hospital for care, something we probably all can recite um, verbatim. Uh, with this, was it present on admission? And the answer was no. It was in normal sinus rhythm by the time they got to the hospital. So what actually brought the patient in, and we've got to look at the circumstances of the admission, could have been the respiratory failure. Again, we don't have the complete chart, but it seems to more fit the bill of a, of a other diagnosis. Um, one of the key things between an other or a secondary diagnosis and the principal diagnosis is the principal diagnosis has to be present on admission, where a secondary or other diagnosis can um, be present at the time of admission or develop subsequently. Um, so that is the major difference between the two. And unfor unfortunately, it seems like we lose a lot of um, money getting paid for the resources that are being used. But unfortunately, we have to go by what the definition says. Hmm. So now I'm going to let Shannon take it over and talk okay. to the coding part of it. Well, from the standpoint of coding, I think this one um, is that, you know, conditions that have resolved and do not meet the criteria as a reportable diagnosis um, at the time of admission for an inpatient stay wouldn't be reported if the patient no longer has it upon admission to the facility. But I certainly understand the need to capture that this was a serious situation that the person was in cardiac arrest prior to the admission. And so if the patient is in normal sinus rhythm at the time of the admission, uh, the only code I would think could be assigned for this would be the patient with a personal history of cardiac arrest successfully resuscitated um, although I have to point out, because I'm a stickler when it comes to spelling, that the government file has a misspelling of 
successfully. <laughs> I just funding. noticed that myself. Yeah. But we can't we can't change it um, because unfortunately, if you change anything in the government file, you can't call it an ICD-10 CM book. Um, but uh, but the Z86.74, there unfortunately are no coding clinics regarding this particular code. So I wish I could you know give something from a coding clinic where it was mentioned. But uh, just as a, a reminder, the personal history codes uh, by the official guidelines explain that a patient's past medical condition that no longer exists, and it does say and is not receiving any treatment, like that they're trying to get the patient into sinus rhythm, but as the potential for recurrence, I mean, because technically they could arrest again uh, and may require continued monitoring. So um, I think in this case that, uh, that that would be how you would have to report for that cardiac arrest that happened that uh, was resolved by the time the patient uh, was admitted to the hospital. Right. Agree. Absolutely agree. All right. Well, running a little long here, but we absolutely have to get to this last question. So let's let's go ahead and do that. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize this one, but essentially this this was a separate question, separate uh, listener who said we've run into a difficult problem: the new deep tissue pressure damage codes. At first, my take on them was that they are to properly identify a deep tissue pressure injury that has not and does not opened up. Furthermore. If it does open up, then it should be staged as a pressure ulcer, either one through four or unstageable. However, this person says, yesterday I was told that this is not the case and that codes for unstageable pressure ulcers or for ulcers stages one through four should never be assigned for diagnoses of pressure-induced deep tissue damage or deep tissue pressure injury. So they, they cite um, uh, the definition from the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel NPIAP with with uh, that that deep tissue pressure injury should never be coded as unstageable as one through four. However, this definition from um, the NPIAP states the wound may evolve rapidly to reveal the actual extent of tissue injury or may resolve without tissue loss. If necrotic tissue, subcutaneous tissue, granulation tissue, fascia, muscle, or other underlying structures are visible, this indicates a full thickness pressure injury. So my thought is that if and when the deep tissue pressure injury opens up, reveals its true colors, it's no longer a deep tissue injury by definition, it is a stageable pressure ulcer, which providers can specify upon further study as POA. They ran this by their coding colleague. Uh, there was significant you know, debate on this. They referenced coding clinic, fourth quarter 2019 but the state it's too vague in my opinion may cause confusion in the above scenario. I mean, in, in summary, this person says, in my opinion, um, I do not think that a DTI evolves into another stage, but rather evolves to reveal the actual extent of the injury that was already there. And in my opinion, this would accurately capture reality and enable coders to assign POA yes as to the stage four pressure, stage four toxic pressure ulcer as this damage had already occurred, but was unable to be staged for reasons already discussed above. So uh, a tricky scenario here, surely. Um, and I will turn it over maybe to Shannon first. I don't know how you guys want to handle this one, but uh, let's, let's um, go ahead. Well, I, I think it may be helpful maybe for Charm to, to talk about the clinical aspects of deep tissue pressure injury versus uh, stage ulcers. Great. For... And, and I will. I, I actually really like this question and it has been, uh, a topic of conversation. Um, deep tissue injuries, you know, they are a unique or a different form of 
of pressure ulcers. And as the question alluded to, the National Pressure Ulcer Advisory Panel, it is a hard one to spit out, isn't mm -hmm. it? Defines a deep, suspected deep tissue injury as intact or non-intact skin. Want to make sure you heard that, or non-intact skin. Uh, with localized area of persistent non-blanchable deep red maroon purple discoloration or epidemial separation revealing a dark wound bed or blood-filled blister. Um, would on to say that how these wounds are described, localized areas of maroon or purplish discoloration of intact skin or a blood-filled blister that forms due to shear or pressure. Um, prior to identification, they can be Boggy, firm, mushy, painful, almost any adjective you want to use to describe them. It can progress to a thin blister overlaying a dark wound bed or may eventually um, be covered by ashgar. Additional tissue issue uh, layers may become rapidly exposed, even with optimal care, which is key. Even with optimal care, there might not be anything that we can do about it. This is why, and we stress, good skin assessments at admission. These may not be visible at admission. If somebody was found down on, you know, they use the example all the time, uh, on their kitchen floor, on their bathroom floor, and they laid there for hours. Um, these deep tissue injuries may not be seen for days until you start really seeing that deep um, colored bruising. So really, again, on admission and during the visit in the in-state patient area, making sure that we're doing very good assessments of the skin very good assessments. And Shannon, I'll turn it over to you for the coding part of it. Um, it's a, This is yet again a great question. Um, I think that uh, this is not unlike sometimes when they add new codes and they try to add them to the guidelines that there could be some clarifications made because I absolutely agree um, that uh, the deep tissue injuries don't really evolve to another stage per se. They're really kind of, in my, my thought, is a, a descriptor of a type of pressure ulcer to differentiate it from uh, a pressure ulcer that generally would uh, seem to come from the top down versus these seem to come from like the subcutaneous tissue up um, or down to the muscle and up um, due to an injury that occurred there and, and likely maybe on uh, uh, particular parts of the body that maybe not necessarily is common for uh, pressure ulcers like knees and elbows. Well, I guess elbows are a big one, but maybe knees because unless they're laying on their stomach. Um, but uh, the problem is, as you can see the citation from the guidelines, is personally the way this reads is it makes it sound like that the ICD-10C manual classifies pressure ulcer stages based on severity and they just added in deep tissue pressure injury when in all reality um, deep tissue pressure injury isn't a stage of an ulcer and so um, not that they asked me about the writing of the guideline but to me it would be more appropriate to say that ICD-10CM classifies pressure ulcers based on severity levels which may be uh, designated by stages one through four um, you know, or as a deep tissue pressure injury, or if the stage is not known or cannot be determined, um, may be classified as unspecified or unstageable. Um, so I agree, the guidelines really did not help with this because they kind of bulked it in with all of the other types of pressure ulcer codes. 
Um, the other thing I noticed is that it does seem to me that based off of the coding conventions that there is no excludes one note that prohibits using a deep tissue pressure injury along with a stage code. So in the example that was given, if you had a scenario where you had a, a site that was documented as a deep tissue pressure injury upon admission, that that would get a POA of a yes. And for documentation purposes, if the specificity was eventually, it does become non-intact skin, that it reveals the stage of the pressure ulcer, that um, there appears to be no um, prohibition on assigning the two codes together. However, I do agree the POA would have to be a no on the staged code, um, which does really um, lend itself to be a problem because that does identify it as a, a hack. Um, but again, you know, some still argue about the evolving stages of giving a POA of a yes to a two that evolves to a three that some still argue, why do they both get a yes, uh, why do they get a yes and a no and be flagged as a hack when it may just inherently be about the natural evolution of the wound. And so I don't really see where deep tissue pressure injury is different. Um, in that case, it doesn't really evolve stages, but unless there's an excludes one note prohibiting the two codes, then it seems that if that is in the documentation, the most specific detail would be to code the, the DTI as a POA of yes of the site and the stage um, as a yes, um, unless there's an excludes note. So again, I think there, there could definitely be some, uh, some future in a coding clinic to me on that one. I, I think there's definitely a little bit of gray area and I agree with the question asker on that one, that it's a tricky one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're gonna hear a lot about this in the future, I think. Yeah. Well, really appreciate it, guys. I know we're, we're almost at the top of the hour. We definitely ran long, but these were outstanding questions, and re we really appreciate our listeners sending them in. I, I did want to just jump back quickly to our poll here. I'm sure people are interested. I am. To see how folks replied to our poll, again, we asked, how would you describe your organization's ability to capture specificity of pressure ulcers? So um, majority, 44% said good, with occasional queries needed. So that's a good good indicator there. But uh, 30, only 37% uh, of next largest bucket said fair. So many queries to the physicians are needed. Uh, lucky 9% said excellent. Very few clarifications need be made. 7% said poor. Not often these aren't captured or they're poorly coded. And 4% not applicable. So any any thoughts on this? Probably not a surprise to you guys just based on the, some of the scenarios you would talking through today, but uh, any thoughts on our poll question here? I'm, I'm not surprised by it. I Listening to people, they're often having to write queries to get things clarified when it comes to, to these types of um, injuries and ulcers, so that doesn't surprise me. Right. How about you, yeah, Shane? Yeah, it doesn't surprise me either. I mean, I think especially with um, your stage threes and fours being hacks, I think that it very many times will likely warrant a query, especially if we know that it would be something that would be flagged that way um, to make sure that it is most accurately being described the way it is and staged appropriately. Um, but uh, and certainly with the addition of the deep tissue pressure injuries, it'll be interesting to see out of those clarifications how many of them actually come from the new codes that were added. But um, that wasn't part of the question, but that would be interesting to know as well, too. Right, right. All right, thanks, guys. Um, we're at the top of the hour here, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to 
skip over our uh, in the news segment. I did have an article that I'll put in the show notes. It was just a piece on sepsis from NPR included here because it it's rare to to see this diagnosis, which we all know and and, and struggle with in our day to day practice, get coverage like this from a major news outlet. So um, I will put the link to this in the show notes. Stealth disease likely to blame for 20% of worldwide deaths. Um, just an interesting overview uh, on the, the the widespread nature of this disease and how serious it is, this diagnosis, and how serious it is. Um, so worth taking a look at. And they have a nice, actually, it's because um, it's NPR, they actually have a, a it's an audio recording here you can listen to as well, three-minute listen. Worth checking out. Finally, I'll just wrap up by saying uh, for our Actus update segment that we've got a few interesting pieces of news to share. Again, um, as you saw here on the screen a moment ago, our Actus 2020 complete agenda has been released. So this is a link to our entire brochure and the national conference. Uh, we have, if you're interested in attending, but maybe you're looking for a discount to go, one, one great way to do that is to apply with a poster. We have a wonderful poster session. There's an image of it back here. We usually have between 30 to 40 or maybe even 50 posters that we have at our program. You have to print that out and bring it with you. We expect you to just spend some time with it at a dedicated poster session during the conference. It's a great way to share an idea, and that entitles you a $200 discount on attendance. So you can apply for a poster pres uh, presentation. And uh, finally, this Friday, we're closing our applications for various boards and committees, including the Actus Advisory Board. So again, head over to the website, actus.org, and uh, check out these stories here, as well as um, considering throwing your hat in the ring for one of our open board or committee positions. Okay. Well, that is going to do it for today's uh, Actus podcast, Talking CDI. Again, I want to thank Charm and Shannon for handling a couple really difficult questions here in, in, uh, with, with, with some great insight. Appreciate it, guys. Uh, for our listeners, we'll be back here again in two weeks. We're actually going to be starting some conference previews. We have a great session next week on CDI leadership, lessons from Adelaide LaRosa. Adelaide um, is a, a true leader in every sense in the CDI profession, moving right up the ranks in her hospital, and we'll be sharing some of those lessons with all of us here in two weeks. So we'll see you back here on February 12th. As always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, or another question like we received today, you can send that to me at bmurphy@actus.org. Finally, uh, you can listen to the show recordings anytime on our website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. We have these available the Friday following the live show. All right, everyone, take care. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Thanks again, Shannon and Charm. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Now.